Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. Matthew chapter 11, verse 2 through 4. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open our ears and our hearts to receive your word this morning, and I pray that you would bless my preaching to be true and useful to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. This gospel passage, at first glance, I think, um, I wonder if this is how you've read it, appears to be John the Baptist wavering in his confidence in Jesus as the Messiah. Is that how, I, I asked Carrie, like, is that how you've read it? She's like, no, I've never even thought really much about this passage. But have you heard, is that how you interpret that? Is John wavering? It's how I've heard it preached before. Um, and the message usually then brought out is look at God's mercy on um, wavering faith. And as uh, my New Testament professor used to often say, um, right message, wrong text. That that is a truth of God, that he is merciful to us when our faith wavers. That's true. I think there's good reason to believe that might not be what's happening in this account recorded in Matthew chapter 11. Um, And I want to dig out some of the details to uh, make the case for why. So um, I think there's actually more going on than meets the eye. And the thing that's sort of under the surface is also is, is profoundly worth paying attention to and instructive for our lives. So the reason I think it it is probably not about John the Baptist wavering is because of what Jesus says about John the Baptist right after uh, the sort of convoy from John goes back, right? He says, what did you go out to see? A a reed being blown by the wind? Which was a proverbial expression in the first century for someone who changes their mind on things, right? Like a reed, like, oh, as the wind blows, so my mind changes. Now, John is not like that. He's He's not someone who changes his mind. He's not like a reed in the wind. Oh, and I'm sort of elaborately paraphrasing here. The, the Lord is like, oh, do you think maybe he went soft? Like, after initially being confident, then he just kind of softened out. Did he look like someone who was soft to you? Like, was he wearing soft clothing? Like, referencing what John's sort of stark outfit of camel hair and a belt and eating locusts. He's not a waver, and he is not soft. So he has not gone soft. Jesus, in fact, calls John the greatest of all the prophets. So I think that should give us pause to think that John has uh, wavered. And if we actually look at those verses I just read, I think we also sort of see something that would um, suggest that John isn't doubting. The Spirit speaking through Matthew narrates, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, naming Jesus by his title, the Christ, and the deeds, the very thing Jesus then tells the disciples of John to go back and tell and say, right? go and tell John what, what you've seen. John already knows what Jesus has seen. He, he's, it says he's heard about the deeds. He's heard about the deeds. This is the very same John, you'll remember, who, when he first met Jesus, prophesied, Behold the Lamb of God. That before others, John had a vision of Jesus' self-sacrificing mission, right? A lamb is what you sacrifice under the frame of the Old Covenant. So even the sort of um, uh, 
imminent antagonism that is rising against Jesus at this point in his ministry is not a surprise, probably, to John. He knew Jesus was going to be sacrificed. So if you kind of consider this hypothesis for a moment, if John the Baptist isn't doubting, then what is going on in this passage? It, it's, it becomes a bit more strange. I think rightly so. What is happening under the surface? I think what's happening is really useful for our own discipleship. So if we grant that John the Baptist isn't doubting, the only way then to make sense of the passage, and this is how um, the fathers of the church made sense of this passage, is that John the Baptist and Jesus are actually tag-teaming to win over the last of the reluctant disciples of John. Because think about it, who are these disciples who are still following John? John has said very clearly in the Gospel, go follow that guy. That's the Messiah we've been waiting for. And yet there's these sort of stragglers late to the party who, who stuck by John for longer. John is in prison. He's about to be killed um, by Herod. Uh, and so before his death, he wants to make sure that the very last of the people who sort of haven't yet followed Jesus would go over and follow him. As it were, this incident is the final passing of the baton between the Old and the New Covenant. The very last followers of the very last prophet of the Old Covenant being sent over to the arch-prophet of the New Covenant. One of the reasons maybe this doesn't um, startle us right away in the text is that John the Baptist and Jesus are utilizing a teaching strategy which I think is a, is a bit less common to us today in our rationalist age. Um, but actually, and uh, Swan's going to laugh here because she knows I don't read hardly any fiction, something that the fiction writers of our day have caught on to, that there's more power in showing than telling, Right? It's, you actually know this difference when you read like a bad book versus a good book. The bad literature is all about telling. Like, and then John was sad, and then Sally was happy. Right? It's bad writing. It's telling, but showing is moving. The, I, I, had to, I looked up, I was like, I wonder, when did that literary trope come in? And okay, this is a very nerdy aside. But it was the playwright, the playwright Anton Chekhov who seems to have coined the concept. When instructing other playwrights, he said, don't just tell me the moon is shining. Show me the glint of light on broken glass. It's like, hmm, much better. What the fiction writers have caught on to is, some, is a, a way of teaching that John the Baptist and Jesus utilize throughout, actually, their ministries that we should consider. I invite you to consider this morning. Jesus, think about it. He doesn't at all go about his ministry just saying, I am the Messiah, Messiah here. He just faithfully does the deeds of the Messiah that were prophesied by the Old Testament prophets. He's showing, he's not telling. In fact, the moment he comes out and tells it, the moment he just straight up says, yes, I am he, do you remember where in, this, where in the Gospel accounts that happens? When he's before the Sanhedrin, right? The night of, before his crucifixion in the kangaroo court. He's that, that's the only time when he comes out and says, I am he, they lynch him that very night. we see that um, John the Baptist's strategy, he's trying to get the last of his disciples to follow Jesus. He's also not just telling them, like, look, that's the Messiah, just believe. The way I think we're inclined, you know, we overestimate uh, how rational we are as creatures. We, we are so much more than rational. And this is a strategy um, which would tap into that. What we see is this. John puts a question on their lips, right? Go and ask him. 
are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? If we take as the hypothesis that John is not doubting, that's a question. He's, he's giving his disciples a question to find out the next truth, the final truth, that Christ is the Messiah. And what a wonderful way of inviting someone to, to discover Christ by giving them a question. I think that's one point we can think of as we are um, thinking about our evangelistic witness in Christmas time. Is rather than just saying, oh yeah, Jesus, Jesus is the Messiah, just believe that. To give a question, a question that shows the stakes, right? Like in, G, in John's day, are you the one or, or should we be looking for another? Like think about it for a second. If you're rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, in, in John's day, you're waiting for someone else. Is someone else going to do more than this man has done? Something the crowds ask at one point in Jesus' ministry. You know, and a bit of thought about that, like, well, no, it's hard to imagine anyone doing more than this man has done. Well, you know, the question leads you to the conclusion you want them to get to. It's a riskier way of trying to bring someone to Christ, right? uh, It's a bit more satisfying, it feels like, to just tell the answer. But to give the right question is John's strategy in his final hour. Then um, he directs them to Christ personally, right? John isn't just saying, look, take my word for it. That guy's the Messiah. When they kill me, just go follow him. He wants them to meet him for himself. Um, And this is a sort of strategy that I'm finding increasingly um, meaningful when talking with folks who don't believe yet in Jesus. And I say yet because Christians, we should always hope, right, that anyone who doesn't will someday. It's just encouraging them to just pray to God. If, you know, the, I love the, I've heard different formulations, but it's kind of the, the, the seekers or the doubters prayer in the, in the formulation of, God, if you're there, show me who you are. You know, it doesn't have to, you don't have to begin with faith, but begin with some sort of existential reaching out to God, the person themselves, rather than just hearing it from your lips. Say, hey, if you want to know if God is real, try to pray to him. Just try it. What do you have to lose? What you have to gain is really encountering the living God, just as John's disciples really encountered Christ. So we see John and Jesus tag-teaming. When the disciples get to Jesus... He also reveals himself in a sort of veiled way, a way that actually invites them to discover for themselves rather than just saying, you know, yes, yeah. You know, he, he could have answered the question directly. No, no, yes, I am the one who is to come. No, you shouldn't wait for another. That, I think that's how we would instinctively answer. He doesn't do that. He points to his deeds. He says, well, look at what you're seeing and hearing, hearing that I've done before and seeing what I'm doing now. And he offers the interpretation of those deeds with this, as it were, like the decoder ring of the scriptures, with this sort of collage of passages of Isaiah, of things the promised Messiah will do. The blind are seeing, the lepers are being cleansed, the dead are being raised, the poor are having good news preached to them. You tell me if I'm the Messiah, right? Like, look at the deeds. And it's the same thing for us, I think in particular now kind of framing on our own discipleship. I've once heard the Christian life framed, and I think accurately, that the sort of long journey of the Christian life is the process of yielding all of ourselves to, the, to a full knowledge of Christ who he is. Right? Because our knowledge is constantly growing. Oh, Lord, you, you actually will call forth that? Oh, I, I didn't realize I've, you know, I claim you as lips, but I really just do my budgeting without thinking about you, right? Like different aspects of our life yielding them to Christ. So we think of parts of our lives as still kind of like the reluctant disciples of John. 
not yet fully convinced or submitting to Jesus' lordship. If we think about this veiled strategy, rather than just sort of saying to ourselves, like, be a better Christian, like, do these things more pleasing, in this sort of didactic, rational way, Jesus would say, look at his deeds. Keep looking at his deeds. And cardinally, and this is why um, for centuries and centuries and centuries, churches can't get over having a crucifix in the church. You see, the, 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 the central deed that Jesus has done, dying for us, keep looking at his deed, right? It might have some effect to just hear the words, oh yeah, Jesus died for your sins. But to actually, it doesn't have to be just visual, it can be oral, it can be through, like, with the ear, but to for yourself behold the deeds of Christ. That is the thing that will actually melt away uncertainty. The means by which the Christian truth can move from just being a truth out there that just exists, like Jesus died for us, and becomes a truth that we anchor to personally. When we behold the deeds ourselves, in, in all the ways they're presented, in the scriptures, when we read them, in the sacrament of the table, when it's celebrated Sunday after Sunday, in pictures of Jesus that you may have in your home, when we contemplate the deeds of Christ, we actually then get to have an encounter with the living Christ, rather than just being told what we're supposed to do or believe. The, um, it's such a sweet, I'm going to turn to it, it's such a sweet prophecy in Isaiah that we heard read. Well, true confessions, I'm embarrassingly bad at finding things. Oh, the ribbon helped me. Here you go. If we ourselves, as well as offering it to others, sort of the way of encountering God, which we can't control, right? If we tell someone to pray to the God to see if he's real, it's out of our hands. It's between them and the Lord. It might take a long time. Same thing with ourselves. We can't just fix ourselves, but if we look at Christ crucified, the deed he has done for us, that is the way in which our uncertainties come to follow him. And that is the way of what Isaiah calls the, high, the way of holiness, a highway of holiness, where no ravenous beast will come upon you, where the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I've not enjoyed so many sermons about the joy we're supposed to have as Christians, right? the peace of heart we're supposed to have as Christians. Because it's so often in the, in the, through the key of just hear this truth and just get it. The only way to actually receive it for ourselves is to encounter Christ and then receive that gift from him. That it's a, actually a displacing of unjoy and unpeace through beholding what he's done for us by dying for me and for you on the cross. So I invite you to consider this strategy. John the Baptist uses it. Jesus uses it. We could use it in our own discipleship and in the way in which we share Christ with others. Amen.